Jeremy, somebody published a list of your favorite books, but then when I looked at the site, it didn't appear that you actually contributed these. They pulled this list from your interviews that you've given over the years. Um, so let's ask Jeremy, do you think you know your favorite books? So you might not even know that these are your favorite books. Uh, I'll tell you what they are. The Wizard and the Prophet uh, by Charles Mann. Yeah, yeah. Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. Yes, we'll check that one. Okay. Immoderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail. Three checks. Okay. Any light reading or? <laughs> is it that is my light okay. reading. <laughs> uh, the End of Normal, The Great Crisis and the Future of Growth by Galbraith. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So is that a, is that a, a, a real realistic list? Is there anything missing that pops pops to mind? Oh yeah, there's tons I'm missing. I'm sure but. tons. Jeremy, I feel like there's an a, an angel and devil on your shoulder. <laughs> Say more. Because you're like you're very optimistic with your long term thinking. Yeah. Right. The way that you allocate the foundation's money. But don't ask you about the next six months. <laughs> we're gonna ask you about the ne- <laughs> we're gonna ask you about the next six months for sure. Next six years. Well, also we'll, we'll ask you about the next six years for sure. Although I feel like I have a little bit of Jeremy Grantham in me. I'm, I'm always scared about the short term. Optimistic, but I'm always scared. <laughs> yeah. If we want to start with uh, optimism. We'll have a much, we'll have a much, better, much yeah. better start, I promise. We're going we're gonna to have a better start once, uh, once the crew tells us that we're, we're ready to go. So. Yeah. Just doing the finishing touches. Jeremy, how did you meet your partners? How did I meet Mayo and Van Ottilie? Yeah. I met them at a a group called Keystone Funds in 1968. They were approximately as big as Fidelity. Fidelity had 1.9 billion under management. Wow. Wow, that's it. <laughs> and Keystone had 1.7 or 1.8. Oh, wow. And uh, Fidelity turned me down and Keystone offered me a job. Is that right? What year, what year is that? That was 1968. And Van Otelo was already there for a year. And within three months, Mayo arrived. Okay. What happened to Keystone? Uh, what happens to everybody? They die of old age. Mm. Okay. So so, uh, so that's where the G- – for people that are listening that aren't familiar with GMO, that's where the GMO comes from. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna, actually going to start off and ask you about uh, GMO. Just we've, we've got a pretty broad listenership, but not all of them are familiar with the company itself. So we definitely want to get into that. And there was a firm in between Keystone and GMO. Okay. Battery March okay. Financial Management, which was very hot for a little window of time. What was their special? What made them hot? Um, two things. AI. <laughs> the, uh, the boss man, Dean LeBaron, was a, a very good propagandist. Okay. And secondly, uh, we, I had the idea of indexing. And so we were one of the two firms, along with Wells Fargo, that introduced indexing in 1971. I'm so mad at myself. As soon as you said battery, I remember that you guys were of the index fund that I didn't put in our doc, but unbelievable. Yes. It's a rather interesting uh, origin story because uh, we went to a a Harvard Business School course for... uh, financial officers who were running medium-sized college endowment funds. It was an Easter course when the students were away. And there must have been maybe 60 of them. We were in this big amphitheater, and Dean LeBaron and I, we were two original partners, were sitting on the back row. And the case was 
if you're an endowment manager, how do you how do you pick managers? And and the authority who owned the business was Morgan Guarantee Trust, J.P. Morgan. Yeah. They they and the other New York banks owned the pension fund business and the endowment business, everything. Secondly, was T. Rowe Price, who was the new boy on the block, believe it or not, <laughs> introducing in the blue trunks growth. My God, who ever thought of that? Yeah. They, they were the growth manager. And then this idiot little enterprise in Boston, Battery March, that was doing small cap, small cap value. A small cap value was not doubly not on the in the game because small cap didn't exist and value didn't exist. Right. Neither of them were a legitimate category. And to add them together was double jeopardy. Right. And at the end of the class, they said, let me introduce the two, two of the founders of the little company on the back row. Uh, have they got any points to make? <laughs> and when it was my turn, it was... I was puzzled why none of them had suggested giving their money to the gentleman from Standard & Poor's. Because if you looked at the data of the dopey bank, T. Rowe Price, little, hardly started battery march, and the S&P, the S&P looked like a layup. Even back then. And uh, Something's never changed. It went down like a lead balloon. No one, no one commented on it. Yeah. On the way home, when I suggested we take it seriously, uh, uh, Dean LeBaron didn't, wasn't impressed, but circumstances encouraged us, and uh, within a year or so, we had offered it. Very slow to get business, but a couple of years after that, 1973, I think we got a, a bell system. Yeah. New England Tell or something like that. Yeah. And we were off and running, and then we divvied up the business with uh, Wells Fargo. How, how, how soon after did you become aware of what uh, Bogle was doing uh, down uh, in Pennsylvania? He, it took a few years before he had a product in the market. Yeah. So we beat him by a few years. Yeah. Unbelievable. Un that's unbelievable. And I, I had not heard that. Uh, Let's get it started. Are we ready to go? Okay. Time is money. Jeremy's time is very valuable. So you missed all my good stories, though. Oh, no. I know. We're going <laughs> we to get, get some more. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Redholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Before we begin today's incredible, incredible show, let's talk about cash. U.S. Treasury yields are currently hitting some of the highest levels in over two decades. However, buying U.S. Treasuries directly from the government is kind of a pain in the butt. I don't think their website hasn't been updated since the last time yields were this high. Nah, no, it's been like literally forever. Public.com makes it very easy to buy those sweet, delicious United States-backed government bonds. To earn a high yield on your cash, go to public.com. It like literally takes under a minute. When you sign up at public.com, you can easily purchase 26-week treasury bills that automatically roll over at maturity for a compounding yield. To learn more about how to get this 5.5% yield on your cash, go to public.com slash compound. That's public.com slash compound. All right. Hey, big show for us. We have a legend in the room. I am so excited. I've been excited about this for weeks. Uh, someone who Michael and I both look up to, 
I think most people in the investment industry look up to. I don't want mean to make you blush. This is this is all from the heart. Uh, but someone who everyone, regardless of their investment discipline, has nothing but uh, respect and admiration for, Mr. Jeremy Grantham in the house. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Howdy. All right. Uh, you see the crowd is going yeah, wild yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you, crowd. <laughs> Jeremy is a co-founder an investment strategist at GMO, a long-term valuation-based multi-strategy investment management and research firm with over $60 billion in assets. Jeremy helped found the company in 1977 after starting his career as an economist with Royal Dutch Shell. Jeremy, welcome to the show. So you told us about the history of GMO. What is GMO today and what is your role at the firm? A GMO is a mainly institutional money manager trying hard to get into private wealth and so on, like everybody else on sure. the planet. Sure. And uh, my role for the last 15 years has been fairly hands-off in terms of any management. Uh, Smart. I was, yeah, I was 70 years old. I figured it was time <laughs> to let them screw up. <laughs> and um, I kind of self-appointed myself in charge of long-term underrated problems. Okay. And um, that was a great decision because we have been cursed with really interesting, important long-term problems. Yes. Which I think collectively threaten the long-term well-being of society in general. So you want to start this on an up note? Uh, we're gonna that get is, that is the up note. Okay. Oh boy, <laughs> that's the good news. So we're we're gonna we're gonna go there later in the interview. Um, but I wanted to talk about uh, quality because this is something that GMO is is has always uh, emphasized. But uh, GMO has actually filed for its first ETF, the GMO U.S. Quality ETF uh, QLTY. Why is quality important? As somebody who's been in a professional investor for pretty much your entire life, what is it about that particular factor uh, that's compelling enough for it to be a standalone factor from which to build uh, sure. something like an ETF? Quality has a claim on being the most mispriced uh, characteristic in, in the marketplace. Hmm. In the old days, we used to be interested in priced book and small cap, remember, small cap effect, price yep. to book effect. But the academics got something right. They, they are risk factors. Price to book is the market's definition of who's got the most suspicious assets in the business. And uh, small cap are more likely to go out of business, of course, than large cap. So when you buy them, you take on some risk and you expect a higher return. Quality, on the other hand, they have less debt. They are less vulnerable to a financial crisis. They are solid enterprises with long histories. They are less vulnerable to an economic problem. A AAA bond, everyone knows and expects it will yield one point less than, say, a B, right? That's the law of nature. Because you're taking less risk. You take less risk. Right. They go bankrupt less. They, they return less than all of your money less often. And of course, you expect to get a, a smaller coupon. The AAA stock, however, has a long history of returning half a percent more than the market. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't it, be of that Of course, way. it's ridiculous. It's the only free good. 
it completely clashes with the early versions of the efficient market hypothesis. It says, by taking less risk of all kinds, less volatility, less any kind of risk, less beta, less bankruptcy risk, you still get an extra half point a year, whether it's 100 years. Last 10 years has been a little bit better than that. Last year has been considerably better than that. So it is very much a candidate for the only free lunch in the investment business. It has, therefore, since we, I am proud to say we realized this 45 years ago when should we started. Should have done the ETF then. <laughs> we should indeed have done the ETF when they first came out. How do you- so Major this, league error. So this is the question now on everyone who's listening to this or watching this. This is the question on everyone's mind. Can you define quality from an equity standpoint? High, stable return with low debt. If you meet that category- Stable return on equity? Well, return, return on, on sales, return on equity. Okay. Any definition and a good would be high quality. And a good balance sheet. These, and a good balance sheet. These stocks have outperformed because they're underpriced because they're boring. They're yes. not exciting. They're, no, no, they're boring. They're, they're just, they're staples. Is it, is it heavy staples generally? Yeah. Yeah. It, when you're excited, you want to buy Tesla, right? right? Not Procter you, & Gamble. Not Procter & Gamble, precisely. And because Procter & Gamble has brand, because they can price the way they want to, the very definition of a brand, uh, they, in the long run, they do better. What happens when quality gets expensive? Because you all are and very, it did very get sensitive. expensive. It, it sure once, did. At the beginning once of, in history, at the beginning of your career, the Nifty Fifty era. In the Nifty Fifty, they went to a fifty percent premium on a very good dividend discount model wow. that we had at the time. Fifty percent premium. Looks like that. It went up smoothly. Three years up, three years down, and the three years down buried the competition because all the big banks were in the Nifty Fifty, and our little firm was in small cap value. Okay. So we were the yin to their yang. So in those days, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Eastman Kodak, the thinking was it almost doesn't matter what valuation you pay for those companies because they are the nifty 50. They called them one decision stock. That's right. Buy or, or buy more. You never have to sell them. Because uh, okay. in, in 69, a lot of the companies that, that got killed were the junky, exciting growth stocks. And then asset managers, correct me if I'm wrong, you were there, I wasn't said, we're not going to make that mistake again. Now we're just going to buy stocks, IBM, McDonald's, that we know are good and prices are relevant. That was the storyline. Right, not story. our storyline, right. but it was right. their storyline. And if you look at the data, what you find is there was an abnormal lack of failures in the 15 years running up to 1968, 72. Hence the lack of fear in paying Hence the premium. lack of fear. Right. If you then look at the next 15 years, you find... Avon, whoops, Xerox, whoops, Eastman Kodak, right. whoops, IBM, half whoops, and so on. Right. And that's, when you've only got 50, that's already quite a lot to yeah. go out of business. Three of them went out of business. And two or three took a good kick. Yeah. Jeremy, you were there at the time. Do you think comparisons that people are making today versus the 1970s, because it's the only really other high inflationary period that we've had in a lot of people's lifetimes, is that lazy or is there something to that? There's something to it in the sense that it's the only inflation period we have. So, but are there more similarities or more differences in your estimation? I think history will say that the 21st century is unusual, abnormal, aberrant even. The window from 2000 until now has been abnormally high profit margins, 
abnormally high PEs, abnormally low interest rates, et cetera. 40 years of lower and lower interest rates push asset prices up, particularly housing, through the mortgage mechanism. How can it not? If you can afford to pay more for your house because the mortgage rates are 3%, sooner or later you pay more for it. Yeah. And so the competition bids the price up to fill the available affordability. Now the mortgage is a seven. The same will happen in reverse. Doesn't happen overnight. Everyone in the market wants everything to happen yesterday. But with interest rates and mortgages, it can take a long time to percolate through. Well, but right. you can be absolutely certain that it will. So I want to go back to, uh, before we get into what's what's going on these days, I want to go back to the quality thing. Um, so then how, so then if, if this is something that now is becoming more appreciated, owning quality companies actually doesn't mean accepting lower returns. How do you build a portfolio that doesn't end up owning a lot of glamour stocks that have become really popular? And, you know, you know, the ones that I'd be referring yeah, yeah. to, how do you, how do you, yeah. how do you build a quality portfolio that doesn't end up owning the most expensive, most overbought stocks? Yeah. You're, you're going to think this is a cop-out because I, I don't run the quality portfolio. Sure. I can describe the early days when we built a, a dividend discount model ahead of the curve yes. 45 years ago in which quality played a, a unique role because of our view. It not only changed the discount rate, but we also changed the rate at which returns regressed. If you had a high quality, you regressed very slowly. If you had a low quality, you regressed very fast. Yeah. And that is a good idea. And uh, what it gave rise to was what we learned to call the Microsoft effect. Microsoft was the sweet spot in our dividend discount model. And from the time it came in the portfolio all the way through the mid and late 90s, it was a value stock. In We had two components in our quant products, a value stream and a momentum stream. Okay. And it was the most attractive decile of value because our model, unlike priced book and PE and all that junk, said Microsoft has such amazing price control, a complete monopoly by definition, yeah. that it's worth many multiples of book. We ran it through our model, very low regression rate, and the answer came back, it's worth you know nine times book, it's only selling at six times book, whoopee, you buy it. And so we bought it all the way through. And price to book was doing actually very badly in 95, 6, 7, 8. And our dividend discount model continued to do very well. It sounds like this thing that you figured out a long time ago, quantitatively, is something that qualitatively uh, eventually became like a revelation to Warren Buffett. And if you think well, about his he, portfolio- He had this revelation before. Right. We started this game. Okay. He predates us. But uh, he was doing cigar butt stuff. He was buying the lowest quality. Oh, he gave that up, though. And then Charlie said, no, 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 no. Let's buy good companies. At, at, let's buy great companies at a good price. You yeah, know, yeah. So it sounds like he got there, too. It is. Absolutely. It's a very big component of his excess return, of his free lunch, if you will. Right. So Yes. And let me just say that uh, GMO put a lot of resources into quality always. And we've been running a quality fund for a long time. It has a terrific record. But it, it isn't just pro forma. It's asking hard questions. What really is quality? Yeah. Define it not just in raw terms like I've described, but 
turn the screws, look at each company individually and think about what makes it vulnerable, what makes it defensive, what makes it tick. And, why would and, you, why, why do you think the, the free lunches you say it exist? Because shouldn't quality be bid up, if anything, if these are spectacular companies that are predictable, that are consistent? Well, maybe they're not bid up I, enough. I, well, you're the guy who said it. They're, they're boring. <laughs> yeah. And in a bear market, people do like them. Sure. And they do perform very yeah. well. They outperform. In a bull uh, market, though, who needs them yeah, in a bull right. market? So if you could have 90, I'm making this up, 90% upside capture, 75% downside, you're going to outperform over time yes. if you could stick with it. That's right. And uh, so you're, you're going to find that in the blow-off phase, like 21, 2021, you know, it's not the Procter & Gamble's leading the charge. It's the Teslas and so on leading the charge. Right. Uh, it also seems that- 2020 would be an even better year for that. I was going to say it also seems like there's some uh, there's some permanence to some, to these these brands persist through generations, and so I don't know I don't know if you can, if it's quantitative, but if you just think about the companies themselves, maybe that's a little bit squishy. But if if you say to somebody what's a quality company, they don't necessarily know what the what the book value is or what the cash flows are, but they would probably say something like Pepsi or J&J, &J, intuitively, just thinking quality. And part of why they say that is these are brands that have existed their whole lives. That's right. But the fangs yeah. have very high average quality mm. because they are, let's face it, monopolies. Modern monopolies. And, and they have great pricing control, obviously, and they have good profit margins. They aren't necessarily higher quality than Coca-Cola, but... Combined with growth, they're pretty damn high quality. We're going to get into the facts for sure in the Magnificent Seven a little bit later on. Jeremy, I want to ask you, one of the things that GMO is very well known for is the seven-year asset class forecast. Where did that come from? It came from Ben Inker and I having the idea that we could do a seven-year forecast about 30 years ago. Right. Well, what's the origin story there? Um, a dividend discount model that had been cranking out rather successfully back in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s. And uh, if you've got an asset, flaunt it, isn't that what yeah, they say? Sure. So we w wanted to find a way of, of using it. And, uh, and that was a good way. Okay. You, you, I was really listening to- And by the way, let me just add. Please. We are going to have a terrible record in an extended bull market. We're going to look like geniuses in an extended bear market. Yeah. And if you go back to the last bear market, the bottom, say, March 2009, yeah. and you run our 10-year forecast, we look like we walk on water. Yes. We've got 12 asset classes. Everyone is in the right order except two that are switched. Right. That isn't bad. No. So number one is number one over 10 years, and number 12 is number 12. Right. Now, if you do it at the top of a bull market, we look like the worst forecasters on the planet. That is the nature of the beast. So before we get there, let's clear up this notion that you have a you have a reputation for being, I don't know if bearish or pessimistic. You're you're a bubble historian. This is me personally, not GMO. This is you, this is Jeremy Grantham personally. Yes. Um, do you like do you like that that appellation, but the bubble historian? Yeah, yeah. Bubble historian is terrific. Perma bear wants not I want great. to shoot people. Those are different. Okay, Those are different things. Absolutely. Those are different things. And you wrote an article very timely in 2009. In fact, it came out in March. 
saying that stocks came out on the day the market hit the low. There we go. Even more precise. So you might have have caused the low. (laughs) No, no, no. Okay. So, but one of one of the one of the ideas behind this. Uh, and again, I was. You have to tell him what it said. It was called reinvesting when terrified. We're actually going to read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you you've said that mean reversion is the bedrock idea behind, or one of the ideas behind these these forecasted returns. Yes. And it has been. We have lived through a period of abnormal excess returns, and Josh and I have discussed this a lot over the years. That the Magnificent Seven have broken traditional fundamental analysis in 2016. So seven years ago, these damn things just won't reverse. Seven years ago, (laughs) you had real forecast returns of us large. I mean, basically everything except for emerging market stocks, um, were, were negative real. And it's been an incredible run since then. It has. And one of the very simple reasons, and and your brilliant partner, James Monte wrote about this recently, the curious incident of the elevated profit margins where he gets into a lot of it is government debt uh, or deficits, I should say, excuse me, but it's very simple. The biggest stocks in the world, these modern monopolies, just will not mean revert. The profit margins are incredible. John, if you throw this chart up um, I made of, of the Magnificent Seven. So it's it's Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, NVIDIA, and Tesla. Since 2000, so for a decade, uh, they've, they've compounded- This is Magnificent Seven revenue and then free, free cash, cash flow. flow, both of which are just extraordinary given the size of these companies. So there's a few extra zeros. I, I did the math wrong, so I apologize, but I'll clear it up. So these have compounded the top line um, at 16% per year for a decade. Now these are trillion dollar companies. They should not be able to do this and free no. cash flow at 13%. In nowhere in, in history- Right. Has there ever been a precedent for companies of this size with this margins and this efficiency and defining categories that didn't exist five years ago and they just won't quit? That's right. If you add that up, what it shows is that from 2010 until today, uh, the U.S. market in total goes up 70% better earnings than the rest of the developed world. It has never done that in history and it probably will never do it again. But for 10 or 12 years, it had this amazing 70% excess performance. If you take out the fangs, the rest of the American market did better, maybe by 10% or 15%. But that's the margin by which they've done it a few times in history. It was the Magnificent Seven, or whatever we want to call them, that turned that 15% outperformance into 70. I mean, Jesus, 70 is a big number for a 10 or 12 year outperformance of the rest of the world. I think a couple of elements are worth bringing up and I'd love to hear like in the order of importance, if you think these were the things that in hindsight, we, all of us collectively, we all should have thought more about. The first is relatively lax, uh, relatively lax antitrust policy in the United States relative to Europe, certainly, but just in absolute terms, we really were not trust busting in uh, the 2000s. Um, I would see. I would say extremely lax. Okay. Completely asleep. So you agree with that? The other one, though, is more interesting to me. These companies refuse to play in their own sandbox and be boxed in to a specific industry. They they move horizontally, and a really great example of that would be Amazon. They were not content to merely be a retailer. They decided they wanted to go into internet infrastructure. They wanted to go into content and entertainment. Cloud. Groceries. Cloud. So we didn't have- Makes all that money. 
Right. So correct me if I'm wrong. If you think about even the Nifty 50 names, Campbell's Soup didn't one day say we're going right. to do aerospace. Right. These, these right. guys they do have whatever some they want. of the most magnificent leadership yeah. in the history of capitalism. Yeah. Plus, they had an almost infinitely favorable environment such as no monopolies. They're all monopolies that were allowed to monopolize. That's right. And they did it very, very well. But I have to tell you my favorite loser story, and that is I bought a Tesla in 2019. <laughs> okay. Red. Model S. And then I wrote in a quarterly letter, what a terrific car. It was unlike anything my wife or I had ever come across. Okay. It was just, my wife hits 90 on the way to Boston most times. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't, hasn't been nicked yet. But, right. Uh, it's amazing. And, but I said, but of course, as a stock, different story, uh, looks incredibly expensive. From that day, it's up 10 times. <laughs> 10x Right, from there. 10x. Now, <laughs> when I wrote that, it didn't have any earnings. Right. It didn't look like it might have any. And in fact, it looked quite uncertain that it would exist in two years. Yeah. And right. They had a cash crunch. They had a cash crunch. Right. He was sleeping in the yeah, he was sleeping in a tent well, building a tent. cars. Who now, knew that issuing stock would be bullish for the stock price? People couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. So if you say how did it happen, he was such a wonderful propagandist that he talked the stock up way ahead of any possibility. And then he sold lots of stock. Yes. Got a lot of asset. Talked the stock up again. Yes. Sold a lot of assets over and over again yeah. until he had generated out of thin air a massive amount of real buying power, which went straight into these mega factories. He manifested it. It was not only a magnificent management problem given that you had the money, but it was almost miraculous management generating the money out of thin air, out of bullshit and, and charisma. Yeah. So now, if you can look at a company that's worth a dollar and somehow imagine that it can talk its way to being worth $10, good luck. Yeah, that's, Th that's, hard, to, not, that's hard to find it. And one or two people have done pretty well at that. Yeah. But it was not. It was not our discipline of the time. We look back and there'd been a hundred years of fairly disciplined mean reversion and you could develop a style in which to make money. And our dividend discount model, by the way, was much, much more uh, friendly towards these new companies like Microsoft uh, than the old fashioned value. And secondly, our quant products had a 40% stream of momentum, which said, do not talk to me about value. I am only interested in how fast you're going up. Right. So the value portfolio was diehard value. The momentum portfolio was don't mention value. And they blended together extremely well. Yes. So we were better hedged than we might have been. Why do you think margins have not mean reverted? Obviously, we're talking about some of the giants that contribute a large portion of They're earnings. They're all brand new ideas. What's the that? Thing, these guys, mm. your Magnificent Seven, they're all dealing with brand new ideas that had never been tried before. N nothing like Google, right? right? Ever. Right. Completely transforming, revolutionizing, really, the acquisition of data in a hurry. I mean, they, bro they broke this chart. This, this profit margins as a percent of GMP, just profit margins in general, yeah. that was a very mean reverting series. Yes, and they they ruined a lot of these. 
They also went global. Easy. They went global. In a, they went global in, in a way that if you were just looking at them as U.S. companies, um, Google's ability to spread across the globe, Apple's ability to sell more product in China than maybe anybody else uh, in in America, the consumer packaged goods companies went global, but most other companies that you would have comped them to just did not have the ability to spread that way and be in 200 countries almost overnight. And I think that that's probably a component to it also. They just always found more places to grow, which I don't know if they can keep doing, but they've done it so far. Well, actually, you'll find that the Procter & Gamble's and the Colgate's of the world, they have been aggressive, and Coca-Cola's yeah. aggressively, you know, finding the smallest African country will have Coca-Cola and Colgate yeah. toothpaste if you look hard enough. No, they've always been international. So I that's think, not a big explainer then? I don't think it's a big explainer. Okay. So, and Apple, it was even pretty capital intensive. It's a kind of metal basher, isn't it? On which they had to superimpose style. Yeah, luxury. And luxury and functionality. They just had to be one step ahead yeah. of the competition in the combination of style and functionality. This is really desperately difficult and incredibly un unusual. And the Tesla example that you, uh, you know, the, the Tesla example is that everyone covering Tesla on Wall Street were covering, they were the automotive analysts, but the <laughs> stock, the, the, the stockholders well, are valuing it, are, are valuing it like it's a, a tech company. And that's a huge chasm. That's one. And then two, there was one other guy that willed a, a business into existence by talking. And that was uh, Ivar Kruger. Uh, the Match King, which I'm sure you've you've read about, yes. but the, in yes. 2019, when you made the decision not to buy Tesla stock, he was he was the model of what Elon was doing, but Elon did it better and did it bigger and made it stick. And with social media, and I, so I'm friendly with uh, Jim Chanos, who was one of the the biggest critics of of Tesla, one of, one of the biggest people betting against it, let's say. And you know he would make the argument they're running out of cash, which of course was true. No, no one who is bearish on Tesla would have made the bet that the reaction in the share price when they sold 5 billion more shares was that it would double. But of course, for the bulls, they looked at, they said, oh, look, they did a secondary offering. See, he really can walk on water. And that would drive the stock price higher. And that must have been maddening for the people that, you know, were betting against it or even on the sideline. Yeah, if you go back three years, yeah, all you have to do, said the critics, is wait until VW and GM gear up and they're toast yeah. because you're comparing people with decades and decades of grinding out vast volumes with these newbies. Yeah. Three years later, all you can hear is the sound of Tesla kicking their bottoms. Yeah. It is amazing. So we just happen to have this collection of extraordinary companies yeah. that are so big that they drive the index. And that maybe that's why and the main, a forecast was so difficult because you can't envision something like you that. You cannot. And, and – Maybe the world will turn against them, and the mean reversion will be a slow-burning, semi-political kind where a few countries will say, it is not to our long-term advantage to have this degree of monopoly over this bigger chunk of our economy. Uh, Jeremy, that would be a danger I would worry about if I were them. Julian Klimochko tweeted, the total market capitalization of all NASDAQ-listed stocks was $2.9 trillion in 2003. I don't know if it's adjusted for inflation, but it doesn't matter. 20 years later, that's approximately the market cap of Apple, to your point. 
Um, you said the five most dangerous words are this time is never different. Matter of fact, um, Franklin Templeton, I think, said, well, actually, uh, I think maybe, I don't know, if, I don't know I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I think he said actually 20% of the time it is different. John Templeton. What did I say, Franklin? I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Sir John Templeton. Um, this, so, but he ahead. did say this time is different are the four most dangerous words. He right. said that, and then he amended that later in life? But or, it, there was no? nuance there. It, okay. So so, uh, so here we are seven years later, and the forecasts, which I know are not explicitly coming from you, um, but are coming from the model that you certainly helped develop, are saying the same thing and pretty much have been consistently for the last seven years, which is negative real returns. And of course, the last seven years have been magnificently positive. What would have to happen in your estimation for the next seven years for it to transpire the way that the model suggests it will? If the world were to behave like it has behaved in every other major bubble, um, that's all it would take. Are we in, in a major words, bubble? Yeah, yeah, of course. If you if you look at uh, a 10-year smoothed average PE and uh, a Schiller PE, you find that uh, there's a pretty decent spike in 1929, a much higher spike than that in 2000, and a slightly lower spike than that now. This is the approximately the third approximately the second highest point, higher than 2029. 20, and in each case, they, they back and fill and they go back to, uh, to more average levels. Even if you allow for a moderate increase in the normal Schiller. Should these companies be compared with companies in the 30s? Don't they, don't they deserve a premium given or what we've or just even discussed? This, or okay, even the so 70s. Let me tell you. This is bait for Jeremy. Yeah. This is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ben Inker and I, 30 years ago, he, he was my assistant at the time, a very good assistant. Uh, I've always enjoyed having smart people do the heavy lifting. And, and the project was, we know the market doesn't like inflation. Let's find other things that the market likes or doesn't like. And let's explain on a coincident basis why the market sells high and low. Okay, and I went on a trip, and when I came back, he tried, you know, 27 variables, et cetera, et cetera, and had a model with a very high correlation coefficient, and it stayed that way ever since. It turns out the market is a coincident indicator of comfort. What makes the typical portfolio manager feel comfortable? Apple. And number one, low inflation. it loves low inflation. Yep. It hates high inflation. Okay. It likes 2% stable inflation. It does not like to see it bouncing around. It doesn't like to see it spike in the worst way. Okay. And it does not like to see it hanging around for multiple years. That's the most important one. Secondly, it loves high profit margins. What a surprise. Now, what's in third, way, way down in third place, is the stability of growth. The growth rate does not have a positive correlation with PE. The market is nervous about bursts of high growth. It doesn't like plus nine, minus two. G it's not, uh, it's not sustainable. GDP, GDP it would growth. rather have plus three, plus three, plus right. three than plus nine, minus two, even though it oh, averages higher. Stability, certainty. It, it, likes, certainty. it likes certainty, stability. Yeah. Quality. 
It like <laughs> quality, quality economic comfort. Growth. Right. Comfort is the best description. Okay. okay. So you look at this model, and it says 1929 should not have been a surprise. It had low inflation, high profit margins, wonderful profit margins, incidentally. And the growth rate was ticking along at a pretty high rate, and it was stable. Mm. So heaven. It, it, the market called the Great Depression. Everything was bad. It got the nifty 50 right on the nose. It got the idea in the 70s that you'd be seven times earnings because terrible inflation, persistent terrible inflation. Low margins. Low margins. Wild economic and wild economic growth. Yeah, yeah. So it 6.8 times earnings was the trough. And the model called for almost exactly that. You think we'll ever see that again? 6.8 times earnings? I don't know, but let me just finish this first. So then it makes what you might call a major error for the first time in 2000. It says in 2000, wonderful profit margins, no inflation. You'll have the highest PE that you have ever seen. Yeah. Not bad, directionally. Instead of 21 times in 1929, a new peak of 25 times, whoopee. And it goes to 35 times. Yeah. And that was not explained by anything we could see in history or then. It just happened. You could argue that that is the only really crazy psychological event up until then in American history, okay? Okay. In, in the history of the American market. We got it 18 months later. It's back on trend. We got the setback. We got the housing bubble right. We got the wipeout right. And then it brings us to the second major deviation. Second major deviation starts in the second half of 21. Second half of 21, we have an inflation spike. Every time we've had an inflation spike in history, PEs have gone down, sometimes rapidly. This one Not this time. was a strong inflation spike. Bloody PEs went up. <laughs> Can I ask you a question about Cre that, though? Hang on for okay, a second. He's, he's rolling. Okay. Cre creating a, a major gap where the model goes down and the market goes up. And suddenly we've got a big gap. Then the market says, eh, after all, I'm not sure I believe the Fed and, and the beginning of 22 is the worst six months since 1939. <laughs> but the model is still going down because PE is, inflation is hanging around and uh, the model declines. So fast forward, what does it say today? It doesn't like the pattern of stickiness in the inflation. It doesn't like the profit margins, which in real terms have been coming down quite steadily now for over a year. They're down over 15% adjusted for inflation. And uh, the model calls for 16.8, which in the long term is still pretty high. But the actual market is 29. 16.8 uh, times earnings. Yes, on a Schiller, okay. on a smooth basis. Okay. And on a Schiller, it's 29. So this I is a pretty handsome gap. And what this says is that is if the market responds to the same forces that it responded to over an entire 100-year period. It's different this time. Well, wait a minute. I want to ask you the about the inflation component. The interesting thing is it wasn't different in 2007 in the housing bubble. It wasn't different in 2009. It's only been different for a couple of years since inflation spiked. Do we really feel the market is cool about inflation, that it will not get 
a moment of second thoughts like it had at the beginning of 2022. Second thought meaning maybe this is not going to go away after Maybe all. this is not yeah. going to be as neat. Just back up a few weeks and we reached this kind of honeymoon period once again where everyone was confident we were going to have a soft, yeah, landing. soft landing. Now, 1929, 2000, 1974, the Nifty-50, every one of these, we were going to have a soft landing. Trust me, check the data. We were, everything was going to work out it's fine. It always starts soft. It never <laughs> does. But Jeremy, we, so we've had, so you wrote in, in, in 2021 in January, waiting for the last dance. Yes, i.e. Yeah. waiting. It hasn't started yet. But you but it, wait. But some of it has. So like if we if we look Arc to be the poster child for some of the stocks that were wildly expensive, since you wrote that post, Arc had a drawdown of over eighty percent, and so a lot of air out of the most expensive parts of the market did burst. IPOs, SPACs. If, if you want to look at the great bubbles and nothing but the great bubbles, what you find is the most interesting distinction is one that is unique to them and nothing else. It never happens anywhere, any other time. And that is the leadership of the market going up, you know, 70, 80% in a year starts to go down as the blue chips continue up. Now, they have, the ones going down have a beta of 1.5. They're meant to go up 50% more than the market. They can't even get the sign right. So in 1929, the S&P was kind enough to have a low-priced index, which was pure junk. Pure junk had been up 80% plus in 1928 and is dropping all the way through 1929. The day before the crash, it's down almost 40% before the crash. It is the great, I like to say, primal scream from the stock market ever up until then. Nothing like that happens again until 1972. In 1972... The S&P is up 17. The average big board stock is down 17. Hmm. That's not bad. Yeah. I can't tell you the low-priced index because the rats discontinued it. Okay. Then nothing like that happens again until 2000. In 2000, we know what happened. They take out the growth stocks and they go down basically 50% before rallying. And the rest of the S&P goes up. Yeah. So in September... On or around the 30th, the S&P is the same as it was at the peak in March of 2000. Right. In the meantime, the growth stocks have gone down NASDAQ 50%. NASDAQ has gone down huge. So right. the rest of the S&P, X, the super growth stocks, has gone up about, we calculate, 13, 14, 15%. So they've same thing has happened. The high beta stocks have gone down. Blue chips continue up. And that happened this time too. And it happened this time too, only the fourth time in history where going back to 2021, they take out my poor QuantumScape, the biggest spec of the entire cycle, which we can discuss. You had a, you had a private investment in that and you couldn't believe the and valuation. We'll come, let's come yeah. back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in any case, starting with QuantumScape and quickly going through Kathy Wood's portfolio and on through the meme stocks and everything, uh, there is an ugly an ugly year following my waiting for the last dance. Because those peaked in January, February of 21, and the S&P made Didn't, a new all-time high in January 22. And, and lasted right through the end of December. Right. But that is exactly what it did in the other three bubbles. In other words, if you're predicting a bubble, you should be saying 
And the characteristic of this decline will be this unique, odd event where the super leaders with the highest betas go down as the last gasp of the blue chips. Up the blue they chips go. follow, you're saying. Down they come, yeah. And okay. then the bubble will break. And the bubble broke for a while. In fairness, though, Amazon got cut in half. Mm -hmm. Facebook went down 70%. NVIDIA, 65. So we did have some of the leaders. Uh, I guess what we're calling blue chips now also happen to be- Yeah, now some of those yeah. got, didn't Google got taken get, down. Google got cut in half. Google got cut in half. Apple, let me tell Apple, you, Microsoft the biggest spec of the cycle is QuantumScape. <laughs> I'm, I invested in QuantumScape nine years ago. We were kind of lured into it by very good ad advisors who specialize in- in green investing. And I was so inspired by them that I wanted to make the biggest investment I'd ever made. It was so big, we decided we better not put it in the foundation because it looked imprudent. So it was the only thing that was in my name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, fast forward quite a few years, and it comes as a SPAC, which is most unfortunate since I've then <laughs> gone on record as saying they are so disgusting they should be illegal. They are licenses to steal for the organizers who really, even to get involved in that, have to be marginally ethical, shall we say. And then a SPAC comes along and acquires your biggest private investment. Yeah. So then I find myself in the uncomfortable position that it's a SPAC. Secondly, it's on the market. Thirdly, it is having no trouble explaining that it's still four years away from having any sales. Yeah, it's experimental battery. Four years from battery. sales. It's a brilliant research lab that finds itself in the market as a SPAC four years before having a product. So what happens? It's 10, four times my investment. Yeah, better than a kick in the pants. Two months later, it's 131. <laughs> At 131, <laughs> it is bigger than the market cap of General Motors. It oh is God. bigger than Samsung, the it's like battery you're manufacturer. Worth at that point. You were richer than Bill Gates. And, uh, no, <laughs> but I that holding was worth 625 million. Oh my God! Well, you were never getting out at that price, so I wasn't allowed to get out That's for right. six months. That's right. And I was cross my heart and hope to die, saying to my troops, "If I am right about what this market will turn out to be." VC will be a disaster. Yeah. And this is the kind of stock that will sell between $5 and $10 a share. 5.1 last December. Would it have been illegal down, for you to hedge down that position? Down from 131. You can't sell it, but could you have bought options against it or something? No. no you can't And it's that. so unique that the usual way of trying to hedge would end in tears. It's amazing that the bubble historian ended up with a position that came to be emblematic of one of the biggest bubbles Investing of all time. Investing is cruel. It's it is. What a cruel irony. I know. Can we go back to the inflation thing, though? I got to tell you how oh, it finishes, please. though. Okay. Six months later, he it's 25. Yeah. It's 25. <laughs> okay. We sold practically all of it, 10 times our money. Whoopi worked out okay. Uh, Ramsey Ravenel, who runs our foundation, we had spent a few sexy hours spending the 500 million that slipped through our in your, in your Hypothetically in your head. Yeah. Uh, when when Ben Inker uh, went back and looked at all of the things that affect the markets positively and negatively and found that the market really hates inflation, was there any delineation between types of inflation? Because if this isn't 70-style inflation, 
which I think was largely event-driven. I think you'd probably agree, events in the Middle East and so forth. You had an inflation after World War II where we had spent tons of money and then the troops came home. Everyone started a family at the same time. Everybody needed a house. Everybody needed a car. You had inflation in that period, but it had a happy ending for the stock market. I don't think we had a meaningful decline in the 50s. I think we just worked off that inflation. And that is like an alternate scenario, isn't it? Or is that too easy? Um, put it this way. You dumb bastard. Yeah, I'm going to leave now. The, the, model, <laughs> the model covers the 50s. Yeah. It found no exceptional okay. behavior in the pricing of the market at all. The 50s were beautifully well behaved. The 60s were very nicely behaved too. I asked that question because wouldn't it be fair to say that a lot of the inflation, yes, money supply, but just the pandemic and how bizarre the economy became with shutdowns and supply chains. And um, it's more reminiscent of a post-war, let's get our get our country back together, than it is the kind of persistent inflation that we saw in the 70s. Or am I just making that up? I don't, I don't feel strongly, but I'm curious what you think. I, I think the temptation to manipulate these major variables. I'm very manipulative. Is, is overwhelming. Okay. Uh, particularly done in the interest of saying the market can go up a lot. Yeah, I just want you to tell me to buy more stocks. <laughs> I, I have a, a long history of, of, okay. of dealing with this tendency over a few decades. And um, I get it. It's nice to be optimistic. And uh, given half a chance, the investment business, of course, uh, has a commercial imperative. It absolutely has to be bullish. It doesn't make any sense to be anything else. It maximizes the return over the full cycle. And that's how they do it every time they're bullish. So right. you never expect a major investment house to be bearish. So we want to shatter this perma-bear um, uh, mythology. To, let's go back to 2009. What did you see? I mean, I know there was a huge mean reversion in valuations and but earnings collapsed too. But what did you see that caused you to make that very prescient call? Um, just, and I, I don't think you were saying like th throw everything you got at, at the stock market, but after having been bearish, the market then declines 50% and you very presciently come out and say, okay, you could buy some stuff now. What did you see? And tell us about like that time if you could. Basically, I say, I've been here, done that, Terminal paralysis, we used to call it. Everything looks ugly. I know how you feel. You feel paralyzed. Yeah. It's not that you are deciding to do anything. You can't make decisions. And what you have to do is overcome that. You have to get a battle plan together. Even a half-baked one is a lot better than nothing. These are cheap prices. You haven't seen anything this cheap for 22 years. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. It will more or less guarantee that you do pretty well for the next seven years on our data. We had double digit on the S&P for yeah. seven years. This was a far cry from two years earlier. So put together a plan, take it to your committee if you're an institution and, and start investing your money. And actually, however fast you invest it, you can't, you can't be too aggressive in those situations because even if the market goes down another 25%, in the next month. It doesn't matter if you've been out of the market. You don't need the bottom. You don't need the bottom. We're already a hero. How do you maintain your hero ship? It's getting in with a lot. So many people can make the sell call 
and not call the top, but just make the sell call. Very few can play both sides and then make the buy call. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is because if you've become famous for making the sell call, it's like a famous musician. They go on stage and the crowd wants to hear the hits. Tell me something even more bearish. Yeah, no, maybe. But you, you made that turn in a very notable way. You deserve a lot of credit for no, that. No, it's just the data. The data was obvious. Fair. We just did what was obvious. And just for the record, uh, the first time we ever got any publicity was the summer of 1982, which is the only other low that matters. Yeah. That, that was the, 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 the cycle low for 20 years. And the Wall Street letter, it was called, now defunct, but because I have a copy. <laughs> and early July, it, it quotes me for the first time, and it says, uh, we're close to an unprecedented rally in both the stock and the bond market, and we are 100% invested. And then it, Nailed it. it, it says 80% in equities, 20% in long-term 30-year bonds. Right. So, Jeremy, you, you deal with data as a professional money manager, but as somebody who ran a business, you deal with human beings. What was it like in the late 90s when you had such conviction that it was a, a mania and half of your clients left? It was, uh, I think the expression is blanking awful. You could, <laughs> say, it you could, you could say it. We're cool. <laughs> you don't have to, but you did, can. Did they try and come back? No. Um, these were, by the way, these are a, not retail investors. These are... So, quote-unquote professional institutions. Institutions with solid, experienced professionals on the committee. But still human beings. And in the, we had specialized products that, you know, lost money, didn't lose money. But the asset allocation group, which was half our business, we lost half our business, half of half, in a, in a real hurry, two years and one quarter, much faster than I would have guessed. And... And we lost it in a very ugly way. The clients hated us. It, some of them treated us as if we were trying to lose the money. And the, and, and the reason is there is nothing more irritating than, you know, you're playing golf with your fellow pension fund guys and they're up 60% oh, yeah. Yeah. and you're up 21. Who needs that? You know, that is pure pain. And people think you get sold, you get fired if you do badly in a bear market. That is nonsense. In a bear market, all the clients freeze and then eventually pick their way through the rubble. You get fired in bull markets. If you lag a bull market, they yeah. are active. If you lag a bear market, they are paralyzed. Greed, greed is more powerful oh, than fear yes. in terms of flows. Yes. Yeah, I can envy, see that. Envy of the guys who are kicking their ass yeah. is is a big, big driver. And, and we lost money so fast. The appearance of you, quote unquote, don't get, you don't get it. You don't understand AOL. That's right. You have Yahoo lost your way. And, right, right. That was the, the constant chat around town. Oh, GMO have lost their way. They're okay. not with the, with the new Kool-Aid order of business. Yeah. And, uh, and no one came back. So As what, in nobody. So we made the right bets for the right reason, and we won, and we made a ton of money on a relative basis on the round trip. But you get new investors in the wake of that. Yes. People that oh, did got, get blown up. We got tons and then of they right. And then they left in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that was fine because we yeah. nurtured them through that cycle. That was the one cycle we kind of got right. We started to explain it very early at the beginning of 07, like watching a slow motion train wreck. And, and 
and we did pretty well because we had a huge position in emerging and we stayed right on till the last second. Yeah. As in the last second. The only time we, in a sense, overstayed our welcome a little bit, but we got out a little to, a little past the peak, but it was a massive move and it kept us the only bull market we ever outperformed it. So that was fine, unlike 2000. Jeremy, I remember reading this in Barron's I don't exactly remember the year. Maybe you do. And I uh, I gave you a standing applause when I read this. Uh, and I'm going to read your words to you, and I'd love to get your, your take on this. I consider myself a bubble historian and one who is eager to see one form and break. I have often said that they are the only really important events in investing. I would agree with that. I have come to believe, however, very reluctantly, that we bubble historians have, together with much of the market, been a bit brainwashed by our exposure in the last 30 years to four of the perhaps six or eight great investment bubbles in U.S. history, I'm sorry, in history, Japanese land and Japanese equities in 1989, U.S. tech in 2000, and more or less everything in 2007. For bubble historians, and this is what I call the coup de grace, this is your quote, for bubble historians eager to see pins used on bubbles and spoiled by the prevalence of bubbles in the last 30 years, it is tempting to see them too often. Say more. Um, well, I would just say, one. let me, let me add one thing to that. And then... Not too many years later, you did it again in Saving for the Last Dance. Basically saying that we are, this is another one of those, this is the fourth epic bubble that you've seen. Yeah, well, in real life, what happened is that I argued for this time is different. The four, five most dangerous words, this time is never different. Okay. And I got into a lot of trouble from Jim Grant, who you know, no doubt. He said I was... Uh, um, I had given up my religion, an apostate, right, to value. And so I wrote him a snotty nose letter and we compromised by, he invited me to his conference at the end of uh, 2017. And I took the side, this time is different, leading with basically, dudes, find me something that is not different. Profit margins are different. PEs are 60% higher than they used to be for 100 years. Interest rates are lower than we've ever seen. Da, 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 dum. They've been going down for 35 years. When did that ever happen? Never. Basically, everything was different. What he said, I can't remember because it is different. <laughs> and it was different. In late 2018, I wrote a paper saying, brace yourself for a probable near-term melt-up. I was thinking... You know, we haven't seen really crazy behavior yet. And it was a head fake, but the really crazy behavior was only a little bit further up the road. Post-pandemic. Yeah, so right. I was deep into thinking, despite what I'm accused of, and you can see it in my quarterly letters, including in their titles, I was arguing it's different, it's more, it isn't a bubble yet. I debated the topic of we are in a bubble in 2016, I took the, no, it's not a bubble. And uh, the other side was, yes, it was a bubble. Um, so I, I, I was not looking. I was into this time is different. The surge that took place in late 2020, um, finally had the characteristics that have been missing for the 10 years. The mania. This epic 10 years. Yeah, we got it. The mania came out. 
Yeah. As I have said many times, written many times, bubbles, it's not just about price. If you get price and it's boring, that is not a peak. You need it's behavior. You need, you need the psychology. You've got to see yeah, yeah. higher prices plus crazy behavior, which is unique that you have never seen anything quite that. And the NFTs qualify? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Meme stocks qualify. Sure. Absolutely. QuantumScape is the biggest scale of any bubble in history. There was nothing that scale. Bigger than Japan? Oh, individual. Japanese real so estate. Individual any company. individual stock. Okay, yeah, yeah. Japan, yeah. real estate, is the mother and father of all bubbles, much bigger than their stock market, which is the mother and father of all stock bubbles. Right. Their real estate was over 10 times downtown Manhattan. Crazy. And downtown Manhattan was very high priced. Downtown Tokyo was over 10 times. Now that's, that's the biggest bubble, I think, in history, including the South Sea bubble. The stock market in Japan went to 65 times stated earnings. There was some cross-ownership complexity, but it looked like an amazing, amazing bubble. So to put a bow on this, as a bubble historian who is eager to see them, are you guilty of being too eager to see one now? I don't think so. I think everybody else is guilty of the usual crime of expecting a soft landing when it never comes, but it's always claimed, believing the Fed, who has never gotten one of these bubbles right, regardless of no. the fact they have involved several different Feds. They help create them, they don't see them. Underestimating the time that it takes for some of these things to work through, particularly real estate. And I'm sympathetic on that one because real estate is a global bubble. It has driven house prices provably to multiples of family income all over the world. China, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, you tell me, 15 times, 20 times family income, Sydney, yeah. Adelaide, yeah. et cetera. Canada, the UK, London. There used to be multiples of three and a half times family income. London is now 10. Toronto's worse, et cetera, et cetera. No one can afford to buy a house now. Yeah. No, no young kids coming out can buy a house. This is not a stable equilibrium. Furthermore, the mortgages have gone from three, which explains everything, to seven, which explains nothing. And eventually, the seven will start to explain quite a bit. But how long does it take? I mean, just think. The first reflex is, I can't move, for God's sake. I can't afford to go from three to seven. Sure. So I am going to stay which means no houses are on the market, which means for the handful of people who have to move, they're actually in a bidding war. And prices stay up. Yeah. yeah, but so real estate has never been about three-month predictions. It works slowly but surely. In the end, you pay more because you could afford to. In the end, you will pay less because you can't afford to. House prices will come down in everywhere from Australia, mentioned that in Australia, it's World War III instantly. They are more optimistic than Americans and oh, they really? hate any idea that they're really. But Jeremy, by, by how much? Because I agree, housing prices, it's, it's an awful issue for people that are looking to get into a home. Are they going to come down, down by 10%, down by 30 or? 30 would be a pretty good guess. Now, let me get on to a quick subdivision that everyone has forgotten. In the 70s, 80s, 90s, we always stated everything inflation-adjusted. Nobody is stating anything inflation-adjusted now. For example... Or what, earnings? Anything. Okay. 
I am short the Russell too, right? In, in, in the foundation. The foundation is 75% early stage venture capital and 25% hedging it as best we can. Using the Russell as the hedge, you mean? Among other things. Yeah, okay. Credit default swaps in, in case this thing really becomes nasty, et cetera, et cetera, which we can discuss, but a lot of short Russell 2000. What has Russell 2000 done? One year, it is down. Two years, it is down. Five years, it is down, adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Nobody is adjusting for inflation. The S&P is 15% off its peak, at least, maybe 16 or 17, because people are not adjusting for inflation. We've had quite reasonable inflation in the 20 months since the S&P peaked. So they can say, oh, it's only down 5 or 6%. Yeah. BS, it is down. In real dollar terms, it's down in, more. And real dollars are the dollars that count. Jeremy, yeah. I know I know you're not running the the show anymore at GMO, but uh, I want to give credit to to the people who are because I might disagree with with the assumptions, and I, I sure hope they're wrong. But you guys or or they those guys are not just talking the talk; they're walking the walk. If you look at the benchmark free um, portfolio, which is you know billions of dollars in there, the United States is is you are very or they are very underweight. The United States. They have twice as much exposure in emerging market stocks than they do in the United States. And it is very difficult to actually do what they say they do because they're reporting to human beings, right? And so to be that different from the benchmark is, is admirable. Good. Let me point out that in the great cycle from 2002 to the housing bubble, Oh, seven. Emerging yeah. outperformed by 180 percentage points. It went up 2.8 times the S&P. The BRICS era. Yeah. These cycles can be huge. And then it, it's been hammered like everybody else in the world. It's been hammered. The way to look at this event is the aberration is non-US equities. Every asset we're talking about has been dri driven up by 40 years of declining rates, as, it, as you should expect, led by housing. But farms and forests, which we have some interest in, they've all gone from yielding 6% to yielding 3%. They're all twice the, the price. Prices are all higher, right. Fine arts, all gone through the roof. Everything has gone through the roof. The US market, through the roof. But non-US equities are curiously left behind. And I can't tell you why, because I'm not sure I have a, a reason for it. Every asset should be pushed up by low rates, and they all have been, except can equities I, can I, can outside I, the U.S. Can I bounce an idea off you as to why that might be? Sure. Just differences in just differences in laws and societal structure. We have 401ks here. We have automatic guaranteed buyers every hey, month for U.S. stocks. These differences have always existed. Right. And until the other day, we used to track pretty damn well. Okay. It's only since 2010 that we've had this deviation caused by earnings. I get that. Yeah. But why should they be? Forget the earnings. We'll spot the U.S., those extra earnings. I'm now talking about the multiplier of those extra earnings. The PEs are much higher times this wonderful earnings. It's okay. double counting. Yeah. Jack, we throw up this chart. So, Jeremy, we're looking at this from Bank of America. Uh, so, the Magnificent Seven are now 28% of the S&P 500. 
I did this, this silly thing uh, in 2017 or so where I said the FANG stocks were equal to the smallest 286 stocks in the S&P 500. Now, that Magnificent Seven, granted there's another two companies in there, are equal to the bottom 386 companies. And they are a big part of the index. And so Bank of America did this thing showing that the equal-weighted S&P 500 trades in line with the historical average, both on the forward PE and, uh, and trailing PE. The top seven, on the other hand, are, in fact, the light blue line is what we're looking at, expensive. Which is exactly compatible with what I was trying to explain, that most of the difference is caused by that 70% earnings. Yeah, that's... that's, that's o- yeah. Only 10% or so, 10, 12, 15 at max, is for the rest of the market in the U.S. They've done a little bit better. But when you throw in these guys, they've done 70% better, which is unprecedented. So... And since we go in for double counting, it's those that have been multiplied by the higher So PA. why wouldn't you be short those as the hedge? Why would you be short the Russell 2000, which is trailing both in valuation and in past performance, et cetera? What, like what, what, gives, you, what, what gives you the idea that you'd well, rather be short the smaller stocks? In a nutshell, if you short these kind of stocks, you will have a short but exciting career, <laughs> right? Okay. Because- Sooner so or later, yeah. one or two of them will go up six times and you are asked for six times the money you put up. Okay. And you are out of business. That will not happen in the Russell 2000 as an index. That will not happen to the Russell 2000. Okay. They're also much closer in characteristics to your venture holdings than They also are. have the highest debt they've ever had in history. Almost no earnings. Most of the time, the Russell 2000 does ha- doesn't have earnings. When you push the PE, you'll get a not applicable. I believe oh, you get it today. Enough of the components are of negative Enough earnings. of them are negative. I think it's 60%. It's a lot. It's a lot. But the point is, if you add them all up, including the negatives, collectively, they have no earnings most of the time, I think, including today. So they have lousy earnings and the highest debt they've ever had. They are zombies. If we have bad economic times, they will get croaked. If we have a financial crisis, they will get croaked. You don't know how these guys will do. Well, they will go down a lot in the stock market, but the first excuse, some of them will bounce. You cannot go short these kind of stocks. Miracles. Shorting miracles is dangerous. Do not go short, period, if you don't have to. Right. If you have a portfolio like I have, then you have to go short. You pick the safest thing to go short. You never go short individual names. And if you do, you never, ever go short that kind of individual name. John, the biggest companies in 1980, can you put this on screen? This is my last attempt to get you to say this time is different. And then I swear to God, I'm done. I promise you. It, this time is, is different. Okay. It's completely different. But it's in, always different. Okay. Thank you for that. These are the 10 biggest companies 40 years ago. This is 1980. These are the 10 largest uh, companies publicly traded. IBM, AT&T, Exxon, Standard Oil, Shell Mobile, GM, Texaco, DuPont, Gulf Oil. And these market caps range from 128 billion. Uh, 128 billion in today's dollars. In today's dollars, down to 56 billion for golf. Uh, John, the next one. These are the biggest, ten biggest <laughs> companies today: uh, Apple, Microsoft, Saudi Aramco, Alphabet, Amazon, Nvidia, Tesla, Berkshire, Meta, Taiwan Semi, and obviously we're talking about trillion dollar market caps. This is the question: it's Apples and couches. This the, is the top ones look like the price of rooms. Yeah, in they look like countries. Manhattan. This. So this, this is week. the question: Is it possible? 
that these are just better companies because 40 years have elapsed and the managers of these businesses have learned where the managers of the 1980s giants went wrong. Let me first of all agree that, as I already have agreed, yes. that the, the fangs are unusual, remarkable. Yes. And some of the candidates for best managed new enterprises, relatively new enterprises in history. Let me also add that every bull market, people always say, isn't it true that the composition of the S&P has changed? Yes, it always has. And, and if you regrade it this way, doesn't it make it cheap? Yes. Every single bull market of my career, that argument has been offered. It is a very tempting, okay. seductive argument. But can it also be true this time? Michael, that's enough. <laughs> no. In the end, to go back to, you know, Hussman, he does very good data. Go back to Hussman's idea of a kind of Schiller PE. It's all part of one pie. And do you think it's totally unlikely that you'll come back in 20 years and two or three of the Apple type companies will have received, for unexpected reasons, some terrible shot in the gut? Sure. That some miserable countries, perhaps including the US have moved against them in some way. Some technology shift has made one or two of them totally redundant almost overnight. Yeah, that's that a high a, likelihood. It's a not a low likelihood. A new way of getting data, a new way of shuffling this or that, a new, a new iPhone technology uh, at one quarter the price. Who wouldn't like a wonderful flipping phone for $250? Right. Um, you don't want to bet that that's, that that's improbable. To go back to the Nifty 50, for 15 years, there were no casualties. The following 15 years, who would have guessed that Avon, Eastman, Kodak, Polaroid, and a couple of others were taken out and shot? The odds are a couple of these guys will be shot. The difference is these are not making, and I know this sounds excuses, but these companies are not making Polaroids, number one. Number two- They're making iPhones. Fine. What's the difference between an iPhone and a Polaroid? But they, but they, Jeremy, they can't, these companies can't get big enough to compete because as soon as they do, Apple buys them or one of these, or Google buys them. There, there is no competition because they kill them in their, in their infancy. So maybe it's a regulatory change where they stop that activity. Thank That's you. the answer to Jeremy's question. That is the- answer to your question. Uh, I think over the last couple of days- It's shameful, by the way, that they are allowed to, to rampage. I think they should have some leeway, but to the extent that they're buying up everything, if they are, that, that would be a shameful state of affairs. I haven't followed them closely enough to know that. And Apple, sure. Apple taking 30% of everything that passes through the app store I don't know. It seems kind of egregious. Well, this is the thing, though. Well, but they, there's no, no one, consumers complaining. No one right. is forced to do it. That's right. So as a capitalist, on occasions, I have to agree, you get away with what you can get away with. If you want to stop it, you don't say, well, that's kind of nasty and aggressive. You pass a law. If you want to have different behavior, you change the behavior. But that's the thing, to Josh's point, who's being hurt? The, co the smaller companies are. What politician wants to go to war with Apple? Well, no, Amazon's the better example. There is no consumer complaining to Congress, damn it, the goods are too cheap on Amazon. It's the type of monopoly that favors consumers, and that's why it's had the runway it's had politically, my opinion. 
Yeah, no, that had something to do with it, which I consider that I have five issues that are my bailiwick. And uh, one of them is inequality, which I consider the poison in the system. And low rates driving up assets only owned by rich people is... is Feeding that flame. ...is in first place. But the bottom line is, was revealed in an in a exit poll uh, when... Uh, Trump was elected. And it was a huge exit poll, like 70,000 in the early stage and so on and so forth. And I, I got the printout, which was as long as this table. It had every conceivable category. It had American Hindus, you know, 275. And it had armies of questions. And everyone split on red-blue lines. Okay, big deal. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah. What else? No. But one question, they all agreed whether they were Hindus or Christians, Republicans or Democrats, rich or poor. And that was, this is the exact phrasing of the question, this country needs to be saved from the rich and powerful. Everyone. And I agree Including the rich and powerful. Yeah. Including the rich and powerful. This country needs to be saved from the rich and powerful. And if you thought, oh my God, Hillary is going to be seen as the establishment, because she is, you could imagine that she might lose. And uh, because Trump would be seen as uh, an outsider, someone maybe who could do battle on your behalf with the rich and powerful. That's not how it worked out. Tax reductions. No, but he campaigns brilliantly on that message. Of course. Yes. But now we know he actually delivered tax reductions for the rich and powerful. Yeah, amazing. Not a hint of closing down their power. They own the regulatory authorities, do they not? They own, in a way, Congress because of Citizens United. It is their absolute right of free speech to spend the stockholders' money without revealing how much they spend, lobbying Congress. On super, on super PACs. They can make yeah. a congressman an offer he can't refuse. We have five million here to point out that your opponent is a genius, or an idiot, yeah. your call. <laughs> uh, How are you supposed, I mean, that takes real ethics and character to go against that. You said that, uh, I think you said this in the last week, you see a 70% recession risk in the next 18 months. I want to I point out for the listeners, uh, the conference board just put out its leading economic index, which has now fallen for a 17th straight month. Um, Basically, uh, basically, we're going into a situation where we're expecting 1% GDP growth for next year, which might as well be zero. I would just say whether or not we have a statistical recession, things are shaping up to the point where it's going to feel like one. And just because of what the comps are to the way people have been living over the last couple of years, all that stimulus comes out, money supply shrinks. Uh, do you, see, you, you feel strongly that recession is inevitable in the next – or 70% likely in the next 18 I months. I wouldn't use the word. Inevitable is a bad inevitable. word. Okay. But there was a recent survey we listened to uh, driving into Boston on, on public radio where they're asking people, how do you feel compared to last year? Every category, every category, rich, medium, poor, feel nervous and less well-off than they were last year, regardless of the data. Yeah. Um, and some of the issues that came up were 
the ending of some of the uh, one-off stimulus programs, stimulus yeah. programs like uh, no payment of student debt. That's just ending. One after another. That's a pretty good indicator of impending trouble when people's confidence in the following year is so lousy, and it's unusual. Secondly, do you know what the record of the leading indicators is? It's dynamite. The leading indicators is, is a wonderful indicator, and it has seldom been this bad. But it's taking so long. Let to me your just, point, we, none of us have the patience. Of course, but, right. that's, we have attention span problems. Yeah. But, yes. but the great bubbles, and they're the only ones I'm interested in, the four great bubbles, they can take a long time. The, market, the bear market in 2000 was a three-year bear market, and that was a gentle recession. No problems. The housing market was cheap. The bond market was cheap. It was as specific and localized as you could get. And we had a three-year bear market, 72% decline in NASDAQ. Amazon went down 92 yeah. before rallying like mad. This was pretty painful. You make a mistake, you have a Great Depression. You make a mistake, you have a, a recovery like the 70s. And uh, even a recovery after the housing crash. It's not been our strongest decade. Is the it's been a long bull market. Is the die cast? Economic recovery has been sub-average. Is there anything the central bankers, given what they've already done, is there anything that they can do now or prospectively to really pull off the soft landing? Or is it just, it's a fait accompli and we should just get ready for it? The only thing I really know with certainty is since Greenspan, the Federal Reserve has got nothing important right, right? Every time it turns, it gets it wrong. Every opinion it gives about a soft landing is wrong. And their battle plan has been wrong. Their battle plan was push up the market to help the economy. And they pushed up the market and they pushed it, and they pushed it three different times, and it did help the economy. The trouble is, they always went down. And that comes in with a negative economic effect exactly when you don't need it, right. and they keep very quiet. They actually brag about the upside help to the economy. So they have it rise through the 90s and collapse in the early 2000s. Then they have it rise to the housing bubble and collapse with the housing bubble. And, and a financial world that is brought to the edge of destruction. It really was on its knees. And then they push it up, and here we are once again, same high prices. Hussman would say about the same as 2000 and far higher than anything else. Better companies, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Can we ask you, this is the last they're, thing? They're different, different companies. This is the last for thing sure. uh, we want to make sure we get to. Um, because this is a big part of, of not just your investing activity, but your life, um, is impact investing. And uh, you're very outspoken about our poor stewardship of the environment. And you seem, we, uh, Michael and I went back and listened to, you, you spoke with a friend of ours, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, a couple of years ago, and you were talking about the environment. So I want to draw this distinction between what you're doing, which is truly trying to impact the situation positively, versus what a lot of people started to do fashionably, which was ESG. So an article came out today um, 
all of the ESG funds that launched are now closing down. State Street, Columbia Threadneedle, Janus, Hartford, among others, have unwound 23 ESG funds so far this year, which is more closed ESG funds than the past three years combined. BlackRock just told regulators the other day they're going to close down two more of their own ESG funds. Can you draw this, the distinction between what you're doing versus an investing fad like ESG, or do you not see that much of a distinction? Are you positive on both, just recognizing that one of them has more power than the other, maybe? I think there are some very interesting ideas lurking in the ESG, and the main one is quality, that if you have good behavior, yeah. S and G, and good E, you're simply higher quality. Better company, probably. You're a slightly better company, yeah, and you're worth a little notch on the quality factor. And that is one of the things we do at GMO, and I have complete faith that that is a sensible thing to do. When I get on a platform with ESG, A, I'm very nervous, and B, I always start by saying, personally, I'm an E guy. S&G is about good behavior. Who can say anything bad about good behavior? It's hard to make the case that that's bad. Right. right. Yeah, I e, want companies to treat employees like shit. Yeah, it's, it's hard to make the case right, that right. that would so make for a better investment. So behave well, guys, that's good. Right. E is about our survival. If we don't get E right, the society will start to crumble at the edges. You could argue that it is beginning on a global basis to crumble at the edges. Have you seen Interstellar? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's I, about how, how this all goes very wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is going very wrong. Who would have guessed that we would have been looking at the headlines of the last two years? Forget the last two months, which are even more amazing. So the spread, of, the spread of disease, the lack of our preparedness for something like that, the extreme Droughts weather events, fires. Uh, the forest fire. I mean, everyone is aware that these things are going on. And, and it is impacting yeah. the economy now for the first time. It is driving insurance rates, not up, but tripling and quadrupling yeah. in certain areas. And that begins to have a real bite. It is the biggest issue that we've ever faced. It will dominate investment portfolios forever. Jeremy, you mentioned uh, insurance costs. Like I, there was an article the other day about uh, people backing out of Florida. Like what if these places become un uninsurable? Well, they'll become underwater, so forget uninsurable. Right. Yeah, that's the least of their concerns. Uh, do, are you in favor? There's a there's a big debate right now whether or not the SEC should have the authority to demand that public companies uh, file their economic, uh, their environmental risk or the the footprint that they have in creating climate change or whatever. This is a big debate. Where do you, where do you stand on that? Is that a burden? that we should put on public companies, that they should have to report these sorts of things to shareholders? Yeah, in a, in a long-run battle between the well-being of ordinary people and irritating the hell out of the reporting officers of a corporation, I think that's an, that's an easy call. Okay. And a similar point would be, do you go after the oil companies for for creating this problem. My attitude is if, hey, if you're a small fracker, you, you start a company, people want your product, eh, that's okay, that's capitalism. It, it's expecting a lot for you to forego an investment opportunity. What I'm interested in is what happened at Exxon Mobil and the big guys, Chevron, 
And that is, back in the 50s and 60s, they talked about the problems that would come. In the 70s, their files are dripping with reports that this will be dangerous. They had an ocean-going research vessel in the early 70s in Exxon. And then, under one of their CEOs, they sell the boat, they fire the scientists, and the money that they had been putting into making reports on the study of carbon dioxide go into funding climate denialist organizations with these interesting names that sound like they might be think tanks or, or even pro-climate change. They deliberately obfuscated the issue. They have possibly, quite possibly, cost us 10 or 15 years that quite possibly we will not be able to afford, that it will come with a crippling incremental cost. They should pay. That is more treacherous and more painful than tobacco, who did the same. They misled us and tried to postpone the day when pay. we would realize it was killing millions of people. Yeah. Because this will not kill millions of people. It will perhaps jeopardize the entire economy and society as we know it. These are not trivial issues. Are any of them better than any others? Is British is BP, quote unquote, better than its U.S. counterparts because they are funding a lot of green energy projects, or is that window dressing in your eyes? I suspect in the end, it will come down to what they actually said in their files. How aware were they? What they actually did? Who did they fund? Yeah, I started out life working for Shell. I, I suspect that Shell and BP are less bad, but it may turn out otherwise. Uh, I suspect that some of the smaller enterprises are more or less without serious blame, just following their nose as ordinary capitalists. It's, it's the denial and the funding that is a blame here, not selling a product that people want. Right. And, that, and that's the thing that's done the damage. So I don't really know where to go from there, but I want to be respectful of your time. This has been, for me, one of the, I think, one of the most important conversations we've ever had and one of the most enjoyable. And I hope you feel the same. I hope you had a good time with us. I did. But thank you so much for enlightening us and sharing all, all of this wealth of information that you have. We really appreciate it. I'm sorry I didn't have another hour to really frighten you. Oh man, we 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 would have we would have taken it if if, if you had it. Uh, I want to I want to leave the audience with we do this thing at the end of every show where we share our favorite things that maybe the audience should know about. Most people talk about a book, or a movie, or a podcast they've listened to, or really anything that comes to mind. Is there any recommendation that you'd like to make to the investors? the financial advisors, the wealth managers, the people who listen to this show that you think they'd be interested uh, in, in learning more about? This, this is Climate Week in, in New York, and it's been madness, one meeting after another, plenty of opportunity to think about important issues. And I found myself thinking, um, I'm 85 in a couple of weeks, and what a, what a blessing to have an issue that really matters to fight on climate change. How amazing are the people who are drawn to America, a quarter of them foreigners, to start up these green VC enterprises. The quality and, and their drive is, is impressive. These, these are not your ordinary capitalists. They seem at least equally driven, but they seem to really value that what they're doing is building something important. 
I, I hadn't expected that. They are just simply terrific people to be around. And I would urge you, if you've got a decent amount of money and you're wondering what the hell to do with it and you're wondering how to entertain yourself, get, in, get into green venture capital. Get into uh, thinking about uh, climate investing. Is there a website or a website for your foundation where people can learn more about what, what's out there? Yeah, where where guess, would you send people to? Grantham foundation.org. Okay. And uh, since I've said this on air, I will race off and make sure we retool it and make yeah. it more interesting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I have to tell you, this has been an absolute honor. We really appreciate it. And uh, for the listeners and for, for the viewers, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Grantham, just an, just an absolute legend. Thank you for everything you've done for the profession. He's got, he's got the headphones off. I know you can still hear me. Thank you for everything you've done for the profession of money management. And thank you for all your inspiration and your, and your wisdom over the years. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that was the warm up. I just wanted you to get comfortable with the yeah, microphone. Yeah, <laughs> because um, the, the real issue yeah. is um, toxicity. You want to have a real issue. Worse than climate change, less appreciated, moving faster. Masculine toxicity? What are we talking about here? To We're talking about the environment is so toxic that it's no longer conducive to life in almost any form uh, in, in a healthy format. This is what we heard you talking to Patrick about. Yeah. yeah. So insects, which may be very threatening to lose beyond a certain point, are down 50 to 75% in biomass. I mean, it's unbelievable. As far as we can tell, they're dropping about 2% a year, which anyone who knows anything about economics or compound math knows that 2% a year is Big simply number. not sustainable. That is, that's the end of insects. What happens? You're not, you're not retooling the forest floor. It's getting full of crap because the dung beetles are not there, et cetera. You're not feeding the birds because that's what they what's eat. Kill, what's killing the biomass of the in, insects? Is it pesticides or is it the, the heat? I'll tell you one thing. People who study this are not funded. They have no money. And they will tell you that these are some of the more complicated issues on the planet. The systems are so interrelated. The insects themselves are so interrelated. And with all the other amphibians and birds, it's one hair-raisingly Are you optimistic system. that we can invent our way out of some of these problems? Um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting topic. We could have had a very good talk about that. <laughs> we certainly but, could have. Um, to get back to toxicity, male sperm count in the developed world is down 60% since World War II. What does that mean? It means you, you have relatively a modest amount of Reserves, not me, but other people. <laughs> well, no, there's more fertility. There's more need for f fertility clinics and and such. You're saying because we're just Mother Nature is not. Well, uh, the real killer here is I, as I said to the New York Financial Analyst Society, who didn't bat an eyelid, and I said, you know, you, you're obviously not interested. So a fifty percent decline then, ten years ago, uh, in fifty years has not got your attention. How about a hundred percent decline in a hundred years? Would that do it? Yeah. I mean, we're out of business. We're, our sperm count is dropping almost 2% a year also, like insects. As the guy who did the most important meta-study said, 
it's as if we are going out of business. Yeah, as a species. As a species, for God's sake. How many more years at minus 2% does it take before we can't have any babies? Secondly, in addition to choice and postponement, there is more difficulty in having babies when you want one. So yeah. you choose to have one, it's now more difficult. The World Health guys finally come out in the last three months and they say one out of six young couples now need help. What they did not say, because they're wimps, is 30 years ago, it was a rounding error. There were a few technical problems right. that will always be there. Meaning one out of six is very high relative. One to out of six is overnight, over 30 years, from nothing to one out of six having a problem. They what, did what, not say what's that. What's the cause? Is it the shit that we eat, the stuff that's in the air? Now, we have to guess for the reasons I said. There's no but available research. Based on two very good, tiny studies done by Harvard and, and Mass General, which is pretty cool, um, it's the chemicals on fruit and vegetables that you eat whilst you're pregnant, okay? These things are designed to kill insects, plants, and fungus. It would not seem that surprising, would it, that they don't do you any good when you eat them? They're killers. I mean, yes, plastics are not good for you, and they, they have nasty chemicals, but that's almost a coincidence, isn't it? You, 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 you get some leaching out of a plastic Pesticide bottle. Pesticide is deliberate. But Pesticide is deliberate. Yeah. It's, an, it's a side. It's trying to kill. And you're taking in quite a lot on the cover of your cherries and grapes. Is, is declining infant mortality rate, though, around the world an offset to the difficulties that we're having more no. and more having babies? It doesn't no, offset it at all? No, it's not. No. And some of the data in America is particularly shocking. The number of women who die in childbirth. Uh, the U.S. is twice, twice the next worst in the rich countries. That is not a small fraction, is it? We, ha we lose twice as many mothers. What explains that? Poverty? Like just bad conditions? Bad conditions, bad hospital system, the worst health system in the developed world by far. Same thing that explains our COVID death rate. COVID death rate was, along with the Brits, the highest in the world. Yeah. Th this is a bad news society, from, as is the UK, from a health point of view. Anyway, back, back to business. The worst thing that no one will talk about is... Wait, that wasn't bad? <laughs> there's something worse. Yeah, Brace. there's something Brace. that is worse, and that is the, the job on our hormones that is done by the toxicity. Forget the sperm count. It is taking away our interest in procreation. In other words, if you look at the countries leading the charge, South Korea and Japan, it is clear that their societies are not interested. They are not like we were 40 years ago. They're not going out to bars and looking for mates. Right. They're going home to play computer games, and the women are going out to see the movies together. 40% of their 40-year-olds have never had a child. Is that right? In South, Co in South Korea? In South Korea... Their fertility rate is 0.8, which means in 100 years, three generations, they are out of business. The baby cohort in 100 years is 6.5% of today's baby cohort. There are no South Koreans. Well, then, but then we won't run out of oil, so that's good. Yes, which brings me to the optimistic 
discussion we could have had but didn't have, and that is there are four or five what I call get-out-of-jail-free cards. Our old friend Malthus and the rest of the boys never thought for a second that we would volunteer to have fewer children. Yes. He said you'll have more and more until you hit the boundary of your food and then you'll starve intermittently like every other animal. What has happened is... Birth control. Is we are choosing yeah. and postponing and inadvertently toxifying our way to much lower population. We got expensive. Come, of course, it's terribly expensive, but there are many other reasons as well. So you come back in 170 years, we may very well be down to a couple of billion people without a crisis where you overshoot and then everything blows up because you've run out of oil and, and lithium and so on. We may be down to 2 billion because we have chosen to go down to 2 billion and because we have chosen to have a toxic environment, which will take a long time to fix. The good news is we have 175 years to fix it because we should have 2 billion people. At 2 billion people, we may be completely sustainable. So sometime between now and 200 years- so we've already years, overshot that by, tw by, by 2x. What, what by do you 4x. think we should, by four? We're 8 we, billion. We're eight? Okay. And we should be two, okay? Secondly, we are very close to being able to produce food in industrial plants. Uh, Imitation meat. Vats of, of uh, microbes producing from sunlight and oxygen, like a plant does, photosynthesizing and, and turning out a, as I was joking yesterday, a, a protein sludge raspberry flavored. <laughs> right. Uh, but cheap and in vast quantities. In other words, it's quite likely that we can feed ourselves synthetically, and that we would be able to rewild half of the farmland of the world and have the Amazons and so on if we had the social discipline to limit meat eating and sheep eating and, I'm sorry, cattle and sheep eating and so on. Next, we're, and, and they can do that, by the way, already. It's just a question of scaling. We are pretty close to being able to do the same with materials. In other words, like carbon fiber is stronger than et cetera, cement and steel. But to produce a material synthetically with well-trained microbes, which is kind of state of the art, and then you laminate your cross-laminated sludge and, and you build buildings with it and you eliminate the need for vast quantities of concrete and, and steel, which are huge CO2 producers. And most important of all, a plentiful supply of, of cheap green energy, which is a done deal. Solar, wind, and storage. Storage will go down to 10 cents on the dollar in 10 or 20 years, and that will be enough. But backing it up, there's a pretty decent chance of fusion. There's a pretty decent chance of, of geothermal with some of the technology from fracking and some new breakthroughs that enable you to go deeper and better and take the heat from, which is infinite in round numbers, and a naturally occurring hydrogen, which is a longer shot, but possible. Some of these will work, I suspect, and wind, solar, and storage is a done deal anyway, and they're much cheaper than fossil fuels, which are in the early stages of running out anyway, so this is all very timely. <clears throat> so cheap green energy, 
cheap food, cheap materials, and fewer people is actually a get-out-of-jail-free. You, you get to survive, not because you deserve it, because we're a bunch of nitwits, but because we lucked out. Yeah. So, and we are inventive. So in spite of ourselves, we might, we might still make it in the long run. We're totally unsuited for this. It's a big ask. We've spent hundreds of thousands of years being fine-tuned to grab what we can while we can. It's a big ask to say, hey, don't, don't do that. Just think about the long term. Jeremy, infertility bailing us out is like what happened with quantum scape and the spec sort of in reverse. Yes. Just, just one of those things. <laughs> Unexpected <laughs> windfall gain. And um, it would do it. Right. So, so the investment ramifications are different. A world where there's 4 billion people fewer to sell an iPhone to is not great for multiples. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this is the point where David Rubinstein two weeks ago. In his pajamas. No, that was. Oh, that was Rosenberg. That was David Rosenberg. Rosenberg. Yeah. David Rubinstein uh, says, what do you wake up sweating about? And I said, well, since you bring it up. David Rosenberg in his pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up smiling at that thought. But um, I have this terrible feeling that we, when we sit here talking about bubbles and recessions and what do investors like and dislike, we're like uh, Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Yeah. We have issues here that are imminent, that are breaking, not for our great-grandchildren, for our children, for you guys. It's already impacting the smooth working of a global system. It's fraying at the edges, in case you haven't noticed. And we're wasting our time on these trivial issues, like who makes what money in the stock market. And I thought, well, if anything's going to get taken out of this one, that's it. But he let it. He left that one. In. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was incredible. Really nice. Thank you. Thank you.